Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word. And Lord, we recognize that we need your Holy Spirit to work in and through the word and to help us be receptive. Um, we need your divine plow to break up our hearts and help them to receive the seed of the word of God so that it can grow in us and transform us and make, make us more like you, Lord. So do that work in us this morning as we look at this passage. In Jesus' name we ask it, amen. Amen. And today's a day we remember those who have gone before us in sacrificing their lives for the country that we could have the freedom that we have. Um, so many countries around the world uh, live under the threat of persecution, the Christians in those countries. In fact, a, a, a fair number of the Christian world lives under this constant daily threat. And we can be thankful that we've uh, religious liberty it's been tested lately, but uh, it's still alive and well, and we can, we can gather like this and worship and praise Jesus without fear of someone throwing a grenade through the window or, or coming in with a machine gun or something. So praise God for those who have given their lives. You know, Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And so many have gone before us uh, protecting our freedom here to worship. So we're thankful for them. Today we are in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And in honor of God's word, I'm going to ask you to stand one more time as I read this passage. Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, and that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. Amen. So we, we have been studying this letter of uh, Paul to the Galatians, the church at Galatia, and those churches had recently been started by the Apostle Paul and uh, Barnabas, but not long after they started 
those churches that's in the southern region of Turkey, they got this news that these people had come up and started teaching them that they had to be circumcised. They had to start obeying the laws of Moses. In other words, they kind of had to become Jews to become real Christians. And this threatened the very message of grace, the grace of God through Christ for salvation that Paul had proclaimed to them, the message that had started those churches. It was tempting them to trust in their own works for salvation instead of the work of Christ on the cross. The attack from these false te teachers also included an attack on Paul's authority. In other words, if they could just bring Paul down a notch and elevate themselves above Paul, uh, they could get somewhere. And, th and they had a little room to do that because Paul was so different from the other apostles. He didn't walk with Jesus. He didn't hear things directly from Jesus, except at that, uh, at least during Jesus' life on the earth. And uh, if tradition is correct, he was a short little man with big buggy eyes and a hooked nose and, and uh, balding, and he, and he wasn't very uh, powerful in appearance, let's say. And so these guys came with their eloquence. Paul, in one place, said he wasn't very eloquent when he spoke. And they were trying to persuade them that, look, we know more than the Apostle Paul. And you shouldn't really listen to them. So he started by sharing his testimony, telling them why and how he became a, uh, an apostle. And today's passage, he explains the authority given him from God. He had in the previous chapter told them uh, that what he taught was a revelation directly from God and that his calling was not from man, but from Jesus Christ and God the Father. He explained that he was not trying to please man, but God who called him. And the message he proclaimed called the, caused the Jews and the Romans as well to persecute him. So he obviously wasn't preaching the message of grace to personally gain anything. It was his heartfelt obligation because of the mercy and grace of God he had received. He was more concerned about faithfully conveying the message than he was about being liked or even about his personal safety. Uh, June 29th, we're almost into June, just a couple of days away from June. And the end of June, June 29th, is the day we remember the beheading of the Apostle Paul on the Appian Way near Rome. So when we read this passage today, please remember this is just, isn't just some minor theological difference we're talking about. This was the reason that Paul lived and died. Jesus made it so real to them, to him that he was not willing not only to give his life, but to die every day that Christ might be proclaimed through the gospel of grace. The previous chapter concluded with Paul telling the story of his conversion from being the chief persecutor of Christians to proclaiming Jesus as Lord in the synagogues of Damascus and then going out three years into the wilderness uh, to, to, to study and reconsider and figure out well, how did he get it wrong? How, how, after all these years of being under the best Jewish teacher, Gamaliel, and and learning from the, the wisest they thought at the time, he missed that Jesus was the Messiah. How did that happen? What did the scriptures actually say? And so he took those three years to find out. 
And verse 1 says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. So <clears throat> Paul was converted not very long after the, the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, somewhere around A.D. 33 to 35. So when he says it was 14 years, he may be talking about after the three years. I think he was talking about from the time of his conversion, 14 years from his conversion. And Jews count days and years a little differently than we do. They, if there's any portion of a day or uh, at the end or, or, for example, 14 years could be um, 12 years and two months, a December of one year and then 12 years, and then a January of the next year. They could count that as 14 days. We see something very similar in the resurrection of Jesus. Um, three days in the tomb. It was Friday evening, Saturday, Sunday morning. So you have just a portion of the two days and one whole day. They count as three days. So uh, I, I say all that to say, when did this happen? 14 years after his conversion, somewhere between 47 and 49 AD. Barnabas had first introduced Paul to the apostles in Jerusalem, and after Paul's three years in Arabia, um, he took them to see the, the apostles. He surely knew about the message that Paul proclaimed, the message of grace for salvation, and, and his call to be an apostle to the Gentiles. So after that, after meeting with the apostles for the first time, Paul then went up into, the, into uh, Cilicia, uh, the area that he grew up in, all by himself. He was alone, disconnected from the others. And then, at that time, the church in Antioch started to blossom. And all these Gentiles started coming to Christ. So Barnabas, knowing Paul was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles, went up into Cilicia and hunted down Paul and said, man, you've got to come back to Antioch and see what's happening here. We need your help because this is your calling to preach to the Gentiles. So this meeting we're reading about here in our passage today probably took place shortly after that when the disciples in Antioch were sending a gift to the disciples in Jerusalem. Um, and they sent it by the hands of Paul and Barnabas. We read about that in Acts 11, 29, and 30. Now, some people believe this is a little later, that it happened, that the, what's the account given here is the same as the account in Acts chapter 15. But the difference is this meeting, as we just read, was in secret, just with the three leading apostles, whereas Acts 15 was a public meeting with all the elders and all the apostles. So I tend to think this is uh, speaking of that time that Paul and Barnabas was brought the gift in Acts 11, 29, and 30. They took Titus with them. He was a converted Gentile, and he was an example to show to the apostles in Jerusalem how God was transforming the lives of the Gentiles. Uh, he may have already been, become an elder. Later on, we read about Paul writes the letter to Titus, to have Titus appoint elders in the churches on the island of Crete. So he was, he was a very significant part of the church of Antioch, and, but an uncircumcised Gentile. Uh, 
we refer to those false teachers that came in from probably from Jerusalem as Judaizers. Uh, that means they wanted to keep the Jewish laws and they wanted to make the Gentiles keep the Jewish laws too. And that was bringing division into the church because it was different from what the message Paul originally preached to the church. So Paul wanted this issue resolved. Do Gentile believers need to keep the law or do they not? Is the church going to split into two factions or isn't it? By telling of this secret meeting, Paul's clarifying to the Gentile believers in Galatia, who he's writing to, that the issue was already resolved. He already went to the heads of the church, the apostles who Jesus appointed to take over. And those who troubled them were out of order, not submitting to the apostles' doctrine. He's just trying to clarify to them, this has already been decided. You know, something very similar happens in our day. Christianity has a 2,000-year-old history. And the Bible's been studied in its original languages, uh, probably, I, I would say definitely, more than any book that's ever been written. More has been written about the life of Christ than, than anyone. And though some teachings have different interpretations about a passage, the overall meaning is clear and undisputable. We call those essential doctrines of the faith Orthodox Christianity. It's summed up in some of the Christian creeds from the early churches. The Bible, let me go over them real quickly. The Bible is the inspired word of God. Um, Jesus is one with God. He sent him into the world to save sinners. He was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He chose to do the Father's will by dying on a cross as punishment for the sins of mankind. He conquered death and hell, and he rose from death victorious, and he ascended into heaven and was given all authority. He will return and rule and reign on the earth. We receive forgiveness that he offers through grace alone, through in faith alone, in Christ alone. Those are the essential teachings of Scripture. And teaching that emphasizes other things above those key issues, those core tenets, or that which negates any of these key points is considered heresy. Paul described the teaching of the, uh, false, these false teachers in the previous passage as apostasy, meaning going 180 degrees the other direction from this gospel of grace. So he felt it absolutely necessary to clarify this issue by presenting to the lead apostles, which were Peter and John and James, the brother of Jesus. Verse two, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had run in vain. Paul's telling his testimony of what took place because it countered the teaching of works that the Judaizers were pushing. What do the leaders of the church have to say about Gentile, Gentiles keeping the laws of Moses? And apparently, as he states here, he had this revelation from God that this was the time to go, and he needed to tell it to them. So he and Barnabas made the trip with, with the gift. And his, his effort is to come to a common understanding with the leaders of the church. 
Jesus appeared to Paul numerous times in person, in dreams, and in visions. We read of that throughout the book of Acts. And Paul believed those who came from Jerusalem church had been undermining the gospel message and distorting the teaching of what the apostles actually believed. And if the timing actually does coincide with Luke 11.30, he's delivering this gift and then presenting uh, his gospel of grace to, to reaffirm it. That's his main purpose, to privately check with those in authority and come to this common understanding of salvation being by grace alone. So even though he knew from those three years that he was taught from the scriptures that this was the truth, even though he had revelations from Jesus, he was making sure that the apostles came to the same understanding. If the Judaizers had the apostles' approval, it might negate the work that he'd done and split the church into two factions. I believe that's what he meant when he said running in vain. Obtaining a common understanding would keep the church united and eventually stop this demand that, that Gentiles be circumcised and obey the laws of Moses to be members of the church. If the Jewish Christian apostles sided with the legalists and insisted the Gentiles needed to obey the laws of Moses, Judaism would have been the graveyard of Christianity. Since the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit, we can thank God that wasn't the case. Amen? Our, our picnic today would be entirely kosher. <laughs> and as I write this, and, and um, note, this was notes from some time back, a guest at church told me he needed to talk to me because he could see what was wrong with the church. In other words, they have more insight and hear from the Lord better than the elders. Maybe, but not likely. And we always hear out these kind of concerns and pray about them to see if we're missing something, to see what the Lord's leading is. And it's possible, of course, that elders could grow complacent. Elders are chosen because of their consistent walk with the Lord and their ability to teach the word of God. God can only reveal his will to a heart that is humble and tender. God can only reveal his will in perplexities and special difficulties to a heart that has learned to obey and honor him loyally in little things and in daily life. Too often, uh, the prideful want to tell us to do the things the way they did it in their church, where they came from, because that's the way they like it. It's often their personal preferences. But God doesn't do the same things in every city, because every city's unique. Sedona is certainly unique. Amen? I thought I'd get a louder amen than that. <laughs> There's no church formula other than to have godly men appointed as elders who seek the Lord's direction from the word of God in prayer. Verse three, but even Titus who was with me was not forced to be circumcised though he was a Greek. It seemed those who wanted to make Gentile converts more acceptable to Jews were insisting Titus should be circumcised. The apostles didn't give in to their demand. Here was a Greek elder of the Antioch church in their midst whom they did not expect to follow Jewish traditions. 
that doesn't sound like a big deal to us. But before Pentecost, followers of Jesus wouldn't even go into a Gentile home. To accept a Gentile as an elder representing the church was a really big deal to the Jewish Christians. Earlier in Jewish history, when the Syrians subjugated the Jews, they tried to break down their devotion to their traditions by making circumcision illegal. And if they found a baby who was circumcised, they would kill the baby and the mother to try to end that tradition. And that's one of the reasons for the Maccabean revolt. Circumcision was a sign of their inclusion in the covenant God made with Abraham. And an, another point in Jewish history, history, there was a common belief among the, throughout the nation that when all males in the boundary of Israel were circumcised, the Messiah would come. And that just helps us to see how important circumcision was to them. So it's not surprising that when they became Christians, many of them would say, the Gentiles believers need to be circumcised. It was so ingrained in their culture. Verse four, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. Now, verses four and five may be talking about what was happening right then at that meeting, or Paul may be speaking back about in Antioch and, and when he was in Antioch and talking uh, about the time that the, this happened to them at the church in Antioch. We can't really tell which, um, but it seems that part of the reason that they wanted to have their their uh, uh, the men's the Gentiles circumcised was so that the Jews who were not believers in Jesus would respect them and not criticize them for uh, for being with the Gentiles. In other words, they could they could play both worlds, and Jews at the time had special uh, permission from Rome to worship the Jewish God. All the other people in the Roman Empire had to worship the Caesar. So if, if we can just get the Gentiles to act like Jews, then they're safe. They don't get persecuted. They can stay within the Jewish fold. And besides that, my Jewish friends won't bother me about associating with uncircumcised Gentiles because they'll be circumcised and kind of Jews. You see how that Compromise kind of slipped in and, and could affect their reasoning. And the pattern we see here has been used ever since. Someone new to the church looks for people who are easily influenced. And instead of taking their doctrine to the elders as they should and say, I have something I'd like to share with you. I think maybe you don't know about this. I want to teach you something. Instead of doing that, they take it secretly to the people one by one to see if there's any uh, receptivity. And they ask, do you want a deeper walk with the Lord? We have something special to show you. Uh, or, or, there's something the elders haven't taught you yet. Let us share that with you. And little by little, they build a faction, start a Bible study, and the cancer starts to spread throughout the church until it's brought into the light. But by then, many have been influenced 
And gentle but firm care has to be taken to try to help the young Christians understand why the teaching was in error. In Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, he called these kind of teachers super apostles. Over the years, we've seen a number of them come through the church. They have conviction. They have charisma. They seem so knowledgeable. But if you listen carefully, you'll hear the message is for their glory and not for the glory of Jesus Christ. They're not interested in what God has been doing in the church. They are critical and use criticism as a way to exalt themselves. They want others to listen to them, but they do not have a heart to listen to others. That's super apostles. Verse 5. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So if this is in Antioch, then the elders there took a stand, a firm stand, so that the other future believers would not fall under this uh, doctrine of works. If it was in Jerusalem, it means that the apostles, uh, Peter, James, and John, along with Paul, resisted the push to have Titus circumcised. What was important to Paul wasn't circumcision or uncircumcision. That's not really the basis of the conflict here. Because Paul says in another letter, in, in fact, I, I think it's in Galatians, this book, Galatians chapter 6, verse 15, that it's not circumcision or uncircumcision that counts for anything. It's a new life. It's the transformation. That's what makes us one. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. Do we not have the same duty not to trifle over minor interpretations, but to keep pure the good gospel of grace alone, through faith alone? We need to keep the main thing the main thing. Respectfully tolerate differences on minor issues, those minor issues can be discussed with love and grace, but always return to the essentials of our faith. Never allow minor issues to be divisive, but insist on unity in the key doctrines. Many years ago, we, um, the, the pastors were meeting together to pray, and we reached out to all of the churches in Sedona, everyone that called themselves a church. And we said, if you can agree on these key issues, please come and, and join us in prayer. Uh, well, we only had two others join us out of the, I don't know, 35 churches because they couldn't agree on those essentials of our faith. Verse 6, and from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. God shows no partiality is um, a reference back to Peter's revelation in, in Acts 10, verse 34, and even further back to Deuteronomy 10, 17, uh, which says, the Lord your God is is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He looks on the heart, not on the wallet or the physical features or the title or the position. And as imitators of God, we should seek to do the same. 
Bold, impressive speakers who are full of facts can turn our heads. But the modest, simple person who has spent time in the presence of Jesus and meditated on his word is the one who speaks inspired word to our hearts. When Paul writes, what they were makes no difference to me, he may be referring to the fact that the apostles were, in the past, unlike himself, uneducated. Fishermen, kind of the, on the bottom of the rung of Jewish society. But he says that doesn't matter. And Because when we first read this, when I first read it, I thought, wow, Paul's kind of putting them down. But I don't think that's the case. The expression, those who seemed, need not carry such a derogatory connotation. It may simply mean, as the Jerusalem Bible translates it, these people who are acknowledged as leaders. In other words, Paul may simply have been using a common term of respect to refer to the leaders who were indeed men of high reputation and considered to be the authorities among the believers in Jerusalem. Had Paul meant this term in a a decidedly negative way, he would have been undercutting his own argument, namely that he and the Jerusalem pillars, Peter, James, and John, were all on the same team and understanding the gospel is a gift of grace. Verse 7. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. So it seemed good to the elders to have Paul, the official apostle to the Gentiles, and Peter to the Jews. Now, this does not mean there are two Gospels. Some people make that error when they read this, that the Jews have one Gospel that includes works and that the Gentiles have another. In the, in the first chapter, in the first few verses of the first chapter, Paul says there is no other Gospel. This is the only Gospel. This is the only good news. What it means is they both have their field of ministry. Paul's field of ministry is to the Gentiles. Did Paul preach to the Jews? Absolutely. In fact, he went to the synagogues first, but his main field of ministry were the Gentiles. The same with Peter. Peter ministered to the Jews, but he also ministered somewhat to the Gentiles. We see that in Acts chapter 11. Verse 9, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars and perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. These apostolic leaders affirm that this was God's will, a part of the working of the Holy Spirit in the world. And it's the same church in different facets, just as we see today in all the church's diversity. Everyone has a unique calling. We all have different gifts. We don't ridicule those who emphasize charity, or those who emphasize the gifts of the Spirit, or those who emphasize contemplative prayer. And we hope that they don't criticize us who emphasize the study of God's Word. We're all a part of the same body, striving to know God's will and to yield our lives as His servants. We all have our part in manifesting Jesus through 
our God-given callings. Our differences should make up a symphony of, of various instruments all playing their parts in perfect harmony to the glory of God. It's all the same gospel of grace. Verse 10, only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. I believe Paul's referring to this secret meeting when he brought that financial gift from Antioch. At the second meeting, though, in Acts 15, which was a more public meeting, to announce to all that salvation was by grace alone, and it, that was the church's official belief, the leaders asked the Gentiles at that time not to offend the Jews. This included not eating things strangled with blood and not committing fornication, not eating food offered to idols. Um, that, but that was so that those actions, not that, the, that those actions would save them, but that those actions would keep them from offending the Jews, making it harder for the Jews then to hear the gospel. Paul tells us not to do anything that would stumble our brother. This one requirement, though, he gave them at this first meeting of remembering the poor was something Paul was eager to do. In fact, they had just given that gift from Antioch. The church in Jerusalem, you see, the, the, the reason that they really needed those gifts and that we see Paul several times in the book of Acts bringing those gifts is because um, widows from around the Jewish world would come to Jerusalem to die. If their husbands passed on, they came to Jerusalem. They wanted to die in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem had a lot of widows. Jews took care of the Jewish widows, and Christians then began taking care of the Christian widows. And the church in the first few centuries was so poor, uh, this in the first century, I'm sorry, so poor in the Jerusalem area that they sometimes referred to Christians in Jerusalem as the poor. So we see there was a real need, uh, something that we should be doing as well, meeting the needs of the poor. That's one reason we help with uh, the mission in Flagstaff and the mission in Cottonwood that, that helps the poor. That's why we have our benevolent fund. Um, our benevolent fund, by the way, just uh, helped a, a pastor who, uh, whose wife came down with COVID and they, they were uh, just barely able to afford her medicine. They had about a dollar, literally a dollar left in their bank account. This church helped them because we believe this message of helping those in need, helping the poor. Luther sums up the message in our verses for today. You know, Galatians was his his lifetime study. Galatians was what really captured him and converted him from Catholicism. Here, he says, human beings are forever trying to add something to God's completed work for salvation. It may be Jesus Christ in the mass, or Jesus Christ in water baptism, or Jesus Christ in good works, or Jesus Christ in charismatic experience. Paul's argument is that nothing absolutely nothing can be mingled with Christ as a ground for our acceptance with God. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Amen.